Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to episode 34 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. And as I said uh, on the Christmas podcast, I've got a programme of podcasts for this year, once a month. And this is the first one, and I've got a guest. And I'm going to read this poem, and you'll get a clue as to who she is. It's called Lara's Surgery. The prospect of your surgery incised mindfulness. Drained the vein of present attention, its callous date blacked into our calendar, a fixed and fixing point in life's soft fluidity. The courage I coached myself in ebbed away at the memory of your birth, sending you ten weeks before your time into those life-supported aching days of anguish. When the parting veil of death wrapped its viscosity round your tiny frame, then released you back into this tender world where you gradually became indomitable. Your face left stretched by your growing until your adult choice for surgery offered another threshold where death grazes life and we arrived at this perilous space again. A year of national health, pulling, breaking jaws, pain, endurance, hospital wards, visiting times. One operation negotiated then on to the next. Top jaw forward, 17 millimetres, bottom back to match. Yet by some grace or choice, I did not take this journey with the hooded gaze of my past, but with a wide-eyed owl stare, a pledge to go hunting life's spark in the present. Until I found in your reshaped face the unmet woman of my grown-up daughter, the sweet smile so like my mother's, and your astounding ability to reinvent your future. So I've got with me today my middle daughter, Lara. Hi, Lara. Hi. How are um, you? All right, yeah. Good, good. A bit of a weird thing to be on your dad's podcast, but um, Eva's already been before you yeah. talking about laughter. We're going to talk about a number of things, anxiety, um, how you negotiate anxiety and trauma, um, trauma from when you were little, trauma in later life, but also that thing that I talk about in that poem, your indomitability, the way you get through things, and your ability to reinvent yourself. So um, that poem mentions your early years. Mm -hmm. So 
Do you want to just say, well, I'll help you because mm -hmm. you won't remember some of this. No. Um, <clears throat> so, when were you born? 23rd of October 1992. Right. And you were meant to be born at Christmas that year. Christmas Day, wasn't it? Yeah, Christmas yeah, it was Christmas Day. So you were, what, how many weeks premature? Ten weeks, was it? Yeah, ten weeks. And you were, where, which hospital were you in? Uh, Whitechapel. Yeah, the Royal Whitechapel in East London. And you were in that hospital on and off for about five months. Mm. Um, and during that time... You had, around that Christmas actually, you had a bit of a crash. Mm. You got a thing called RSV, a hospital virus. And they actually told us that you might not make the day. Um, and we had to go in and we had you baptised. And Eva was there, Eva was your godmother. Mm. Um, and then you were blue lighted to Great Ormond Street uh, and put on a thing called ECMO. Do you know what that means? Yeah, because of ER, I know. <laughs> um, uh, it's where, isn't it, where they stop, um, the, it's about blood circulation. That's it. So going. it's called extracorporeal yeah. membrane oxygenation. Yeah. And they put a cannula mm. into your carotid yeah. and into your heart. And they took the blood out of your heart That's it. and put it through a machine, oxygenated yeah. it and then put it back into your body. And you've still got a big scar, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. And on Lara's shoulder, she's got what they call secondary circulation because they had to tie those uh, arteries and veins off after. Mm. So the blood has found another way up to your brain and everything, yeah. which is a good thing. Mm. <laughs> and it was like having the sword mm. of Damocles. I don't know why I said I'd ask you about this because I remember <laughs> it better than you do. It was like having the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. Um because uh, they have to use heparin to thin your blood to get it through the machine and back into your body. Mm. So you were laying there with no breath movement, but pink as you'd ever been. But if you had a pulmonary uh, a clot, clot uh, blood clot, or in your brain, that would be it. Yeah. Uh, and they no, not that. a clot. Not a clot. Uh, if you if you had a bleed, oh, okay, it's the opposite. Okay, because your blood wouldn't clot. Oh, I see. If you had a bleed, they couldn't stop it. And they couldn't stop it. So okay. they basically said, and they came with a, an ultrasound every day, and they scanned mm. your head and your lungs, yeah, and your heart, and it was horrific because you knew if there was one, that was it. Yeah, you were gone, and I used to read you. Uh, do you, you remember what I told you I read you? Um, Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe. That's right. I read yeah. Narnia stories to you. Yeah. Um, and it was it was unbearable at the time. I remember walking up and down Great Ormond Street and seeing people laughing and smiling and just mm. wanting to shake them and say, you have no idea what's happening mm. in that hospital to our daughter. But you came through it. Yeah. And you came back to the Whitechapel and then finally you came home. Mm. And you were on oxygen for a long time. Yeah. So when we went out, we had to take an oxygen cylinder mm. and you had cannula up your nose. And in the house, we had a machine mm. that we used to prove bread on because it was noisy mm. and warm. Um, I know you don't remember any of that time, mm. but how, how does it sit with you now? It's, knowing all that was how you came into well, the world. It's odd because I, through all you telling me, it feels like I, I remember it. And watching home videos, 
you see the oxygen and you hear it mm. um but it is all i whenever i have, even now i'm 31 if i have to go to the doctors for something new obviously they'll have all my charts there but they might say have you ever had this done and i have to say i don't know i might have done i might have to call my mum yeah. <laughs> it feels so silly and i've even said to mum i think she's doing it i've said to mum can you and dad write down a list of everything medical i've ever had done just so I, when i ever go to the doctors i've got it mm. i can just say read this um because there's still things i don't know and when we watched er was our big lockdown watch so er is a tv yeah. show um how many series are there 15. so it was in it the was, mid 90s <clears throat> in america yeah, yeah yeah and it was on around the time you were yeah. growing up we used to watch it yeah with george clooney yeah um, and uh yeah uh, it was yeah it was great but you so go on uh, and one and it was there was a young a baby and one of the main characters who was on ecmo and mum went that's what you had and you explained what you just said to me and i i just said oh that must have been stressful and you and mum went yeah so it's things like that where you say things like you had this or you had that but i don't really know what it was and my best friend is now a midwife so she sort of will fill things in for me mm. actually recently i was telling her about how there was a point where i should have i could have had steroids and for whatever reason i, I didn't mm. and I said, I said to my best friend you know I, i've got 50 percent lung capacity maybe 50%. i would have more yeah if i'd had those steroids and she said don't feel bad they would have helped you in the short term mm. but it wouldn't have changed you would still have had 50 percent it wouldn't have done much to it uh, now as your dad and the memories i have of you as a as a young child <clears throat> it seemed to have had no effect on you 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 were the most happy child <laughs> and you were very enthusiastic <laughs> um you seemed to approach life with with quite a lot of gusto <laughs> that's what i meant in the poem about you, you became indomitable but do you remember ever feel you know do you have any feelings about we did an episode i did one with patrick about yeah. childhood trauma yeah and how that affects you do you think it affected you as you grew up i always felt different and i remember teachers would treat you differently as soon as mum said i had a statement an educational statement yeah, in yeah. primary school and it's funny some teachers would would think okay but I'll be led by Lara. If she ever needs any help, she can come to me. And they're always the ones that, remember Mrs Hardy, who was my year three and year four teacher, I loved her. Because she, she didn't patronise me. Mm. She was just like, yep. Um, it was the teachers who were really overbearing and who would say to me, you can't do this. Because I'd been told that, and I was like, and I just thought, well, am I? But that, that makes me different. And that <coughs> it means I'm left out from my friends. And, and you know, and there were times where I, because I look different, I get. So how did you look different? Well, my 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 jaw I had a longer face. Um, my jaw was longer, and I and I sounded different. I, I um, and I still do to some extent. I have a speech impediment, so I looked a bit different. And I sounded different, and it was hard for people sometimes to understand me. So I, and I and the thing with kids is it's not. I mean, sometimes it's done maliciously, but sometimes with the kids they're just honest. So that if you're different, a kid will just think, oh, you're, you know, they'll look at you or they might say to their mum, why does she speak? And then I never heard a kid say, 
why does she speak like that? But you, you look, you see on their face of, ooh, yeah. that kid's different. And I, I remember that. Yeah. People would ask us. Yeah. And, and technically what happened was, you were born with a syndrome. That was the other mm. thing we haven't mentioned, called yeah. Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. Which, so even in the womb, they noticed that you were actually, your intestine was sticking out of your body. Mm. It was called an umbilical hernia. And um, <clears throat> so that's what we were worried about when you were born, but actually you were also 10 weeks premature. Yeah. Which, So Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, usually the kids grow to be incredibly tall mm. and sometimes they grow, one side of them grows quicker than the other, but they also have very big tongues. Yeah. It's called macroglossia and you had that. Yeah. And what happened was your bottom jaw grew to accommodate, to accommodate the tongue. Yeah. And they told us this would happen and they said, however, it, we can deal with that when she, when she stops growing. Mm. Um, so, so your childhood was, I, mean, I just remember you being incredibly mm. happy most yeah. of the time. Did I mean, you feel happy? Yeah. I mean, I remember, and I've talked about this with my therapist, hospitals were like a home from home. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I remember the day going into the children's hospital, and, and I remember in those days, <clears throat> you go to the receptionist, say your name, they tell you to sit and wait, and then when you were called through, there was like a little corridor where you picked up your chart to then take to the consultant. <laughs> and I remember the day, and the one went, oh, you've gone onto another chart. Your, your chart is so big, we've had to, you were, you were it two was charts massive. now. Yeah, and I remember thinking, oh, and it, things like, that, when that becomes a, you know, a, a big norm. deal, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when mum, there was a point when mum worked as a chaplain at the children's hospital. So I, mum would, you know, take on a lunch break, she'd take me to my appointments, and. I knew the hospital really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We do all do. Yeah. So that's yeah, and, and in fact, the day Tom was born, mm. you were uh, about four, I think. Yeah. When I got home from seeing Tom born, you were so ill that I had to take you to hospital the yeah. next morning, and we neither of us saw Tom for four days because no. you were so sick. Um, so yeah, you did have quite a lot of respiratory issues yeah. when you were growing up. Yeah. Um, so there was a in your. Uh, sort of first early years there was a lot of trauma yeah and and we carried a lot of anxiety yeah that's the thing I think you carried it more than me because I just thought it was normal yeah and I and I didn't remember it yeah I know you carry it but well that's the interesting thing that's some of the things we've explored on this podcast mm. about there's a book called the body keeps the score mm. I think that's what it's called and I think it gets stored in your body mm. so we'll come back to that in a minute yeah. so after, after you, when you grew up mm. and you went through teenagehood, mm. your face was longer than than your average person, yeah. and people would comment on it, mm. and you became more conscious of it. I yeah. would say, would you? Yeah. 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 And um, they, how old were you when when, I, when when you decided to have the surgery? That's the thing. I don't remember making. At sixteen. It was always in the pipeline yeah. that I could have it. And, and it you would know, be your no, choice. Yeah. But I remember always thinking, I'm going to have it. Just, well, to be fair, at that point, I wanted to be an actor. And I thought, quite naively, it would be a quick fix for my speech. Uh. And I thought, I really want to act. 
um, you know, speech is a massive part of that. I was sort of told, this was after I made the decision, told by someone that because of my speech, I couldn't act. Hmm. And that made me even more, I'll show you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it didn't help that that person was a... A, a drama teacher. Drama. <laughs> no. No. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I just, it was all inevitable that I was going to, going to have it. Right. Um, and yeah. so... But 16 was when, I think was when I had to have about two years of, or more, of brace work. That's right. So I had to yeah. know a while before. Yeah. I remember you watching a video about it all. Yeah. And me and your mum thinking, oh my God, that looks big. Yeah. And you going, yeah, I want to do it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, <laughs> let's get on the roller coaster then. Yeah. Um, so you had a, a couple of years of brace work to mm. put your teeth in the right positions. Yeah. And then, when did you have your surgery? The first one was 9th of February 2012, and then there was a six-month gap. And wow. the second one was 13th of September 2012. 2012 was a big year. Yeah. And the first surgery, they moved your top jaw yeah. forward, mm. and they put in these things called distractors, mm. which were, they broke the jaw, on both sides and these things and we had to turn them with a screwdriver yeah. every day mm. I think it was twice a day I think it was yeah for about a week or and two it was weeks. pretty painful yeah so you had the surgery I remember you coming out of surgery your face was really swollen mm. it was very painful you were on all kinds of painkillers yeah and um, and 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 then we had to do that and and mr. Lee was the surgeon yeah and we'd go in and he'd have a look at you mm. Like like a joiner looking at a bit yeah. of a bit of a table, yeah. and he'd think, yeah, okay, a bit, you need a bit more on that side, a bit less mm. on that side, and they moved your jaw forward seventeen millimeters, mm. yeah, um, which was extraordinary. Was it, it? What was that like? It was, yeah. When you did the with the screws things, it when you had because you, you sort of had me, I had all my painkillers before you did it. That's right. Actually doing it didn't hurt the minute you did it, mm. the painting. Mm. Um, yeah, that was... How did you felt for you and mum? Cause you, <laughs> because... <laughs> That's you all over, Laura. <laughs> no, but because it was such a big thing for you to like, right, we're going to get a screwdriver in yeah, your jaw. I know, I know, I know. Um, and I remember who was... Who we had friends round one night. It was Tess and the mum when you had to do it and they were just sat like... <gasps> They yeah. couldn't believe it. No, no. Because we told them. <clears throat> yeah. They were like, oh, you're actually getting a screwdriver, you know. It was, it was hard, yeah. yeah. It was hard for all of us, I yeah. think. You were incredibly brave. The thing that I remember most in the time of that surgery was just how extraordinarily brave you were. Mm. And you just seemed to get through it all. Yeah. So you had your first surgery, and, and literally the, the reason the distractors were pulling your jaw forward was that the bone would grow. Growing. yeah. And, and and fill in. Yeah. And the risk was, he said to me, to us, we won't know if it's done the job till we go in there. Yeah. So if it's not done the job, it'll be a bigger surgery the second yeah. one. Yeah. But we don't know until it's a risk. So, and this is all 12 years ago now. Yeah. Um, I think the reason why I was so gung-ho about it, to get through it, I'd, I'd been accepted onto a foundation acting course. Yeah, yeah. That was going to start January 20, 2013. Yeah. And I just thought, get me there. So you had a goal. Yeah. 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 And then 
He had the second surgery in September. Yeah. Um, and I remember coming in, those days when you were having the surgery, because they were long surgeries. Mm, they were. were and, and I said in the poem, it took us back mm. to all of that time. And I was determined not to have it be completely overshadowed by yeah. what was, it was like when you were little. Because there was so much anxiety when you were mm. little. And um, so you had the second surgery. I remember your mum saying to me, you, you had this ice mask on. Uh, that that tried to cool your face and, and reduce low, the swelling. Reduce the swelling. But you said to her, "I look like you now." Yeah. Um, which made your mum cry. Yeah. And me. Um, and gradually your face healed, mm. and you look like you look now. Yeah. You look really different to the way you looked before. Yeah. What was that like? It's only now that I look back. At the time, it was so. I would look at pictures and I think, oh, I do look different. But it's only now, it's when I meet people, when I talk to people who didn't know me before, um, that when they look at a photo and they go, oh, you were, you did look different. You, you just did. know me now. Um, but even my closest friends who knew me before then, they've sort of forgotten. They've just got yeah. so used to yeah. how I look now. And the thing that shocked me the most was once the swelling went down mm. and you smiled and laughed, you looked just like my mum. Yeah. It, it really took me, knocked me for six. Yeah. And you still do. And you have a lot of characteristics like my mum. Yeah. Um, so that was an amazing. And so you went off mm. to do a foundation in acting. Yeah, in London. In London, on your own. Yeah. That was hard, wasn't it? Yeah, I was so excited because um, I just wanted to be in London and be around theatre. And in a way, it was the best way to, you know, to best way to move to London for the first time. I was very lucky. It was at Regent University, which was this amazing building in the centre of Regent's Park. I know it was incredible, yeah. wasn't it? So yeah. I lived in this, and so I lived in the centre of London. In terms of going to theatre, I went to the theatre every night. I'd, you know, cause yeah, I, was, I remember you made, didn't you make a scrapbook? Yeah, one of the... For your course? Yeah, our, one of our teachers, Jane, was a casting director. And as well as doing monologue work and acting work, every Friday, she said, you have to, to go out and see. It can be plays, museums, you have to go out and see things. And I would. And I'd come back every Friday and list, you know, list off all I've seen. And at the end of that, module was making a scrapbook right. of everything and it was i mean mine was massive i remember um yeah you, uh, and that that was a big thing to do after mm. that surgery after your upbringing to go to london i know eva your eldest yeah she sister, was, there. That helped was a lot. in london yeah but she was on the other side of london yeah i spent a lot of time traveling to see her yeah because it was quite lonely it was the course was wonderful <clears throat> The people I met weren't quite on my no. level, especially politically. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time. Yeah. So there's things going on for you there. Yeah. One is acting. Yeah. Theatre. Yeah. Where did that come from? Um, came from grandma. Yeah. Grandma took me and Eva. That's my to mom. a lot. Yeah, your mum to a lot of theatre growing up, but also just you and mum. I think about this a lot. You and mum, in terms of what you let us watch as kids, 
You were so, and this oh is in the, no, but no, it was in the best way. <laughs> it, you were so liberal, like you, you of course, you know, there were things where you sort of said, you know, not we'll skip this bit or yeah. we'll explain to you. But like, I was watching Buffy <laughs> at eight, and yeah, <laughs> how not to parent. No, because yeah. I remember so vividly as you do when you're little. You go, you wake up in the night and you go to the loo. And you hear like adults and you hear stuff. And so I wandered down and you were watching Buffy. And I remember the episode. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The Vampire Slayer. It was the, in the fourth series. And I, and I just saw a clip of her fighting. And I thought, wow, she's amazing. And I think, <laughs> I, I think you saw me and said, okay, you can watch 10 minutes. Right. And you right. sent me back up to bed and that was it. That you were hooked. And then our friend Simon, who was a Catholic priest, <laughs> uh, watched it. He was he was so excited. So hopefully Simon's going to be a guest on this yeah. podcast as well. He was so excited that I was watching it. Um, <laughs> no, but even just, but you know, but like, it, it was but, never. But, but theatre yeah. acting, what what? I when I was in year six. The tradition was in your last year of primary school. Oh yeah. You always had to do a musical. Yeah. Uh, for some odd reason, <laughs> our year we did a musical version of Romeo and Juliet, which I thought was the most normal thing <laughs> for a year, for a group of eleven-year-olds to do, <laughs> and I just fell in love with the play and with Shakespeare, which again I thought was the most normal thing yeah. for an eleven-year-old, and it wasn't, and I just and I fell in love with it. I found every version I could under the sun. <laughs> Remember the drama teacher who thought she was so sophisticated, yeah. saying, right, who's going to play Tybalt? Yeah. And she said, I'm sorry, miss, it's not Tybalt, it's Tybalt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was giving her, it got to the point when I was giving her things to, like, reference. <laughs> yes. And then I got, yeah. So, so that, that gave you the bug? Yeah, Shakespeare. And we ran a drama group that yeah. you were in, your, yeah. your older sister was in. Yeah. We both seemed to get the bug for theatre. Mm. So you went to London, Regent's College, yeah. Foundation in Acting. Yeah. That was a year. Six months. Oh, was it? Was that yeah. Oh, wow, six months. And then she didn't go into acting. So no, what, what? while I was there, I think because of all the theatre I was watching, I sort of thought, oh, I, don't, I, was, I sort of realised that even though I was confident, I wasn't that confident to yeah. get up on stage and act. What I loved was the plays and the research and mm. the stories. So I thought, okay, directing. And again, naively, in during How that old were you then? 20. <laughs> yeah. I applied for a BA in directing. I mean, no <laughs> directing. Um, this is what I mean about you being I, indomitable. Yeah. It is amazing. And I didn't get into that. But I thought, oh, actually, I think I really want to do a degree in drama yeah. and, and or English. After, you know, sixth form, after sixth form, going to one open day in sixth form and, and thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm not clever enough to go to uni. I don't think I can do that. Um, so I said, I sort of put that aside. And then during that acting module, all the research bit, I thought, oh, I might give this a go. Um, so I applied, I'd, and I knew. Where did you apply? I applied. So Goldsmiths was always my first choice. Yeah, and which I applied, is where your sister went. Yeah, and I applied to Queen Mary, to Manchester, mm. oh, Greenwich, yeah. most yeah. London ones. And you got into Goldsmiths. Yeah. yeah, but you had to do something to get to Goldsmiths. Yeah, my A levels weren't brilliant, so I knew I had to get them better. Um, 
improve them. And a friend of Eva said, oh, I did an access course, um, which is similar to A-levels, but it gets you into uni. Mm. And it, I found one in London that would sort of fill those six months after my acting course. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for six months in Islington College. Yeah. Which was so fun, because I, I did history. I wanted to do English as my main module, but for some reason I couldn't. So I did do English. My main one was history, mm. which I never really bargained on doing. But the teacher was, he was this old guy, and he was wonderful. And we did all these history modules that I'd never done. Yeah. Um, the one that I wish I'd done now, that I just, I was sort of buried in work and thought I can't take on another module, but I wish now I'd done it. It's a whole module on Israel-Palestine. Mm. And I wish I'd done that now, because... Oh, it would have, yeah. Because yeah. I don't... Uh, yeah, um, but that's the thing, he, he was one of those history teachers who would just want you to learn everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you finished yeah. that, yeah. got into Goldsmiths, yeah. moved to East London, yeah. uh, and and started studying English and drama, yeah? yeah? Yeah. And at that time, I remember, was the first time I ever saw that you were starting to get anxious. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. <clears throat> my, and I talked about this too... I caught up with my old flatmate the other week and we talked about this. I think I was, well, I was severely agoraphobic for the first year of university. Really? I'd, apart from going to lectures, going to theatre, where I knew I felt safe and I was with my friends and seeing Eva, I didn't go out. So when all my, fr- when all my friends were going out clubbing and going out to pubs, I'd just make up some excuse that I couldn't go. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a break yeah. and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about those years with yeah. anxiety, but also things like feminism, mm. um, era, yeah. women's equality, all of that. Okay. Brilliant, Laura. Thank you. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. So we're back um, and we're going to talk about anxiety. Uh, you know, Anxious Poets podcast, anxiety, vulnerability, and poetry. So this is a poem I wrote. <clears throat> it's called Advice to Myself in Anxiety. And uh, I just want to see whether you resonate with any of this. There is no miraculous cure for all this, just a stubborn willingness to engage in the day as it comes, not as fear makes it. The panic often rises, altering the view of the world around you, making it shimmer, not with beauty, but with the strip light of disquiet. It passes, though, and gives way to joy, not joy unending, but fleeting, gone when noticed, days of endless homecoming and eviction. Breathe slowly into this. Don't run. Stay. You're moored more firmly than you know. There is a constancy in you, not your own. Be kind to your running part. Trust all your story, whatever it leaks over your curated persona. If you settle in unshielded, all will be well. Not well as in a trite joyfully ever after, but life lived to the down dregs, drudged and diamond-like, weakening into the starry night. That endlessly constellated nocturne, which at the close of each Sisyphean stone-pushed day intimates a mist-wrapped and unpredicted dawn. A Sisyphean... uh, Stone push day, bit pretentious, but Sisyphus, you know, was the guy that pushed the rock up yeah. in Greek myth, and then every morning it was back down at the bottom. Mm. So, 
you started to experience anxiety at college. You yeah. felt agoraphobic. Yeah. What but was I that like? I didn't think it was anxiety. I didn't know what it was. So I spent the whole year knowing something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And then it was starting second year and my my knees every yeah. day felt like they were going to go from under me. And the problem was, when I was younger, they would. Yeah. It, they, like, you had loose ligaments yeah. for some reason. I don't know why. I no. think it was to do with your condition. Yeah. So I knew, <clears> So the problem was, in my head, it was real. Yeah. So that it was a real thing. Anxiety, I always find something yeah. real Yeah. to but, build on, to... to yeah. Well, not always, but often find something mm. real in your medical life or history. Yeah. yeah. And I, so I remember really clearly thinking, I've got to do something about this. And it was coming up to my birthday, and you were all coming to London yeah. to see me and go and see a play. What were we going to see? Um, Hamlet at the Barbican. <laughs> the one thing that our family all say about Laura is she's got a memory like an elephant. Yeah. If you want to know when something happened or what we were doing, <laughs> you're the one. You've got an amazing memory for yeah. that stuff. I don't know what happened, where that So I do from. remember it. Was, it yeah. was Benedict Cumberbatch. It yeah. was at the Barbican. Yeah. Yeah. And I. And this is when we really first realised mm. that you weren't doing well. Yeah. And a week before that, I and the great thing about Goldsmiths was that they had a drop-in therapy. So at three o'clock, I think on a Friday, you could just walk in. Right. And I walked in, I filled out all the forms, and I just said to this woman, I think I've got anxiety, and I don't know what to do. Mm. And, she's, and she was so lovely, and she gave me a few... She said, no, I think you're right. I think you need help. We can't give you long-term help. We can give you a few sessions, mm. but here's some people to call. And I, I think I told you that I'd gone. Yeah, you did. And you're like, you've done the right thing. Yeah. And I sort of thought, when I see you and the family, and I'm Julian, Neil, your auntie and uncle. They were there, in, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, coming as well. I thought I'd feel better. And that morning when I woke up, um, I did. And I my friends took me to the pub lunch and they sort of weighed me off to go and meet all of you and as I was walking to the tube I thought I thought oh I don't feel good mm. I don't feel mm. good mm. and I met you all um we booked into a hotel yeah. I was staying that night yeah we dropped our bags off we'd gone we'd opened presents you bought me a lovely pair of Doc Martin shoes mm. that I'd put on straight away um we had a meal and I, after the meal, I was holding onto Mum's hand and just saying, I really don't feel, I don't feel good. Mm. And I felt like I couldn't walk without holding on to someone. You look like an old woman. Yeah. And we got to the theatre and we watched the first half. And I said, I, Tom was with us. And I said to Tom, can we go and sit somewhere? And I sat down and we watched the second half. And I just felt awful and I just thought any minute I'm with a fall I can't and walking back to the hotel was a real I was holding on to mum for dear life I remember and we got back to the hotel I think we, mum took me up to my room and Eva was with me and they said okay let's sit you down um, and Eva said to me the shoes were a metallic purple colour and Eva said to me Laura your shoes are sort of red purpley colour I said, no, no, they're purple. And she went, well, there's red on your heel. And she took my shoe off and I had blisters. Yeah, I remember. I, and I'd not even felt it. And I was, it was really, um, the skin was raw. 
And they and and I just said to Mum, I need to come home. I can't go back to uni. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, that's fine. We'll sort it. And the next day, we were seeing a friend in London, and I remember she had a dog with her. So yeah. We had to find a dog-friendly pub that <clears> took <throat> ages. And yeah. I just kept thinking, I need to sit down. Mm-hmm. And then we got to a pub. We sat down, and I said to Mum, can we just go to the toilet? And I couldn't stop crying. And that was the thing. I couldn't stop crying. Right. It was like something had been released by me saying, I don't feel well, I need to come home. And, and um, we could talk about this for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. But there are other things I want to ask you about. But yeah. I do find it interesting that somehow you felt like your legs couldn't hold you up. Mm. That whatever was going on, you couldn't bear your own weight. Yeah. And I think... I don't want to trick psychologise you, but it was about the weight of all the trauma that you've mm. experienced, I think, yeah. do you? Well, I remember saying to Mum, I don't understand it. I'm doing something I love. I'm in a brilliant flat with brilliant friends. I feel happy. I don't understand why mm. this has happened. And Mum said, because it's when you're... She said, to my mind, when you're in a good place, that's when you're able to deal with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's probably all that stuff coming up, catching up with you. So that's why I wanted to talk to you, not just because I know you and yeah. I think you've got an amazing story, but because I think that a lot of people listening, that this is how trauma and anxiety mm. work. It's There's a time lag. Mm. That was happened to me. Yeah. All the trauma that I'd built up in my life suddenly yeah. came when I was in a place where I felt okay. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to be the same for you. How did you get through it? Because uh, you didn't have medication, did you? No, that scared me. Mm. I mean, the only time I've been to the doctor and said, I think I might need some, but I'm really scared. And he said to me, you know, if you can get on without it, brilliant, because it, I know it scares you. If you do need it, we can give you the smallest dose of something. Right. Um, I th- therapy really helped. Yeah. So talking. It, yeah, but it took me a while to find the right one. Yeah. Um, well, that's helpful. Yeah. Because I think, I, you know, I think when you're feeling really rough, having that discernment to think, is this the right person, is yeah. really important. You need to find someone yeah. who, who works for you. But it wasn't just the person, it was the setting, the first place. Right, well, that's interesting. I found was in, on, in London Bridge, which again was central London, mm. loud, mm. noisy, and you walked in and you had to sit and wait for your therapist to come up and get you. They then took you down these stairs into a dark, windowless room where you yeah. sat and talked about anxiety and all. And then they were like, okay, bye. Yeah. And literally <clears throat> waved you up out back in central London mm-hmm. where you were going to feel anxious. Mm-hmm. And I just used to think, what do I do now? I'm not, I don't feel any better. And you don't initially. Um, yeah. So talking, what, what else got you through that time? You helped, because you've been through it before, yeah. and you kept saying to me, it does get better. Yeah. And I remember Eva actually saying, Dad, it's hard for Dad, because your anxieties are so similar, because it's all physical. Yeah. Um, and you're convinced that something bad is yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Um, and sort of the luxury and privilege of knowing, and it happened once or twice, that if I needed it, you'd come in the car and get me. Right. And bring right. me home. Right. Um, so you've got a safe place. Yeah. And I was at university again, where, yes, you know, you've got a... Goldsmith was great, yeah, I think. Yeah, where you sort of, you know, it's... Yes, it's, you know, you've got a um, responsibility to go to your lectures, 
which I always did. I don't think I only missed one. I know, which is um, amazing. But it wasn't the job. It wasn't that he didn't think if I don't go to work. Yeah. Yeah. I had the privilege of, and the safety of thinking I can miss a couple of weeks. And it won't be. And you've got a degree, so you've got a two-one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at that time, and I wonder whether this is connected. You became interested in feminism. Yeah. And the theatre aspects of that. Yeah. So you got involved with a thing called ERA. What's mm. ERA? What was ERA? It was called the Equal Representation for Actresses, and it formed just as the Me Too movement started. So the Me Too movement was when um, women started to name the abuse, abuse. that they were experiencing. In the, when in, the minute Harvey Weinstein got named yeah. as an abuser. And you really got interested in all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I always had been. Yeah. And yeah, you had to be fair. From Buffy on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and to be fair, Eva being in acting at that point and hearing what Eva was Eva was telling me, and also at that point I was I was trying to find work in London and I was struggling, and it was something to do yeah. other week. Um, and it, yeah, it was this brilliant group of women who would meet at the National Theatre, which again was somewhere I loved to to go. Yeah, you spent a lot of time yeah. in the National Theatre. And we just meet, and I sort of, just through being there and sort of being loyal to them, became part of their campaign group, and they were launch and they launched their campaign at BAFTA, and I was part of that night. That and must that have been was, amazing. I couldn't believe that I was in I was in the BAFTA building. I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I just thought, I'd watched the BAFTAs every year since I can remember. And I was meeting these people that I looked up to. Now, I met Jess Phillips, I, I met Olivia Coleman, I met Philip Lannister, I met the, the biggest person, I had my lovely friend Sally, who was sat with me. She was similar to me, she was a bit um, overcome with it all. And she said, look, we're never going to be in a room like this again, mm -hmm. probably. We need to take advantage. Who do you want to talk to? And I said, well, I don't know. And I said, Mark, I said, me and Dad, I, you know, we would listen to the Mark Cunningham's Radio 5 show every, you know, every Friday coming home from school. I think he's wonderful. And then just and I, just by chance, at the end of the night, I was giving out the goodie bags. And um, he came and got one and I said, um, I just need to say that I'm a really big fan. I love your show. Me and my dad listen to it all the time. And he said... Well, I'm a really big fan of you. What you're doing here is wonderful. That's brilliant. And he shook my hand. And I was like, <laughs> you know, you think, oh, they are nice. <laughs> They're as nice mm. as you think they are. Mm. Um, but just being in that room. And at that time, so that was one thing that you pursued quite rigorously. Yeah. And it taught you a lot. Yeah. And perhaps gave you a way of dealing with some of the anxiety. Yeah. You felt safe in that world. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, again, it's things to do that distract you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the Women's Equality Party. Yeah. So again, I was looking for things to do, uh, looking for work, and I became a volunteer. So I volunteered with them twice a week, um, so, and I, I worked in the office doing administration work, sort of ten to five, two days a week. Um, and I was with them for about a year. So yeah. Um, and I knew of them. I knew of the party. Um, so I used to go to. Women of the World Day every year at Southbank Centre. And I think it, for, yeah, Sandy Totsvig formed the party at one of those events, just saying we need a political party for women. Um, so I knew of it and I, it just came up, I think, on Twitter. Where, where do you think all that 
because you've got a massive sense of justice and <clears throat> and and the 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 awfulness of injustice mm. i mean it doesn't just upset you it it it, it really troubles you yeah uh, ever since you were little mm. anything that had a big injustice in it in even in a film you got yeah. really upset where's that come from and i don't know i mean you and mum, the work you and mum have always done has been that sort of stuff. And you've never shied away from telling us things. No. Um, and what we went through as a family, um, what you and mum went through uh, with, you know, religious communities. Yeah. I mean, they get to talk about trauma. That trauma, me and Eva talk a lot about that time and not understanding what was going on. Yeah, we had and difficulties then, in a Christian yeah. community and difficulties. With yeah leadership um, yeah so I think some of that must have rubbed off on me mm, mm. Um, but yeah I've always yeah I don't know yeah well, I mean it's so strong in you mm. and I I think the anxiety is a bit of a barometer mm. it makes you anxious that stuff because it yeah. seems so wrong yeah but action and doing something I, you say distraction I think absorption is more like it. You yeah. get absorbed yeah. in into doing something, yeah. which I watched you do in London. Yeah. And then <clears throat> then lockdown happened and you decided to come home and you decided to change career. Um, what did you do? Um, I decided to do a law degree. Because of your godmother? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Barbara, Lara's godmother, who was our midwife and mm. was there when she was born, what did she say to you? She said, I sort of said to her, London, I can't stay in London. I'm try. I was trying to get into casting, in theatre. Yeah. And I got as close as you could get, and I wasn't getting anywhere because I didn't have the experience. And it was such it's a bit a catch, of a close shop, isn't it? Yeah, and it was such a catch twenty two. It's like, how do I get that experience mm. if I can't get through the door? And London was just too expensive. Yeah. Um, and I just thought I need to do something else. And I remember when it must have been a friend or someone saying to me, when you have those sort of get to know you conversations. If you weren't in the arts and theatre, what would you do? And I always said law. And I said this to Barbara, and she said, do it then. And let me just ask you, because the one thing with Laura is that if she finds a drama, mm. and, and I, you know, people might sneer at this, but <laughs> given the fact that we've all just watched uh, Mr Bates and the Post Office, yeah. which is a drama that has made people realise just the huge injustice that was going on yeah. and made people feel it and think, well, that could be me. Mm. So what what were the dramas that you liked about the law? One, uh, it was on the BBC called Silk. Yeah. Uh, written by Peter, Mo Peter Moffat, who was a barrister in his early years. And With, it was Maxine Peake, yeah. who played a wonderful barrister. Female Mar barrister. Yeah, called Martha Castano. Yeah. And she, every episode, she was just... She was a criminal barrister, and she just fought injustice every week. Mm. Um, and and I just thought I want to do that. Yeah. I don't know how. Um, and so so yeah. you signed up for a law degree at Hallam University. Yeah. And then lockdown. Yeah. And you came home because it was cheaper to do it that way. Yeah. Came back to Sheffield, and lockdown happened, and that was hard work, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, I took, um, and it was such an odd obviously an odd time because we all knew something was on the horizon. I remember 
being in uni and they'd already put in the hand sanitizers in the corridors and we were sort of saying I wonder what's going to happen and then that was it that was our last day of uni yeah. we never went back it was all on zoom all on zoom and I was I knew I was struggling with the workload and just with lockdown and being shielded and I I sort of kept it quiet I didn't tell you how much I was struggling and then I did the I didn't handle it well and I had a deadline I knew I, I knew I couldn't meet and I just said to you I'm not doing well I'm not going to meet this deadline. I don't know what to do. Your anxiety came back a bit, yeah. didn't it? Well, it was health. It was all back to health, you know. Yeah, of course. I was shielded. Yeah, yeah. There was this virus that everyone saying because of your you, lungs. Yeah, that everyone's saying if you get this, this is going to kill you. Yes, God, um, I've forgotten that. And we watched the not about a year into it. We mm, watched that drama. I think it was less than a year. Yeah, it was, it was pretty a soon. A documentary about the first days yeah. of COVID. Yeah. And you absolutely burst. Yeah. And and. So I remember you saying, I don't want to die on my own. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it was, I'd forgotten how visceral that was. Yeah. And that, no wonder it sparked your anxiety. Mm. However, you yeah. got your degree. Yeah, so I took a break in the middle of lockdown, went back to it in the September and then finished it. You're, yeah. Summer 2021. You're a great example of someone who, who knows your limitations and then yeah. will go back. Yeah. And you had a job for a while with a litigation company. Yeah. And then, now what do you do? Um, I work for Citizens Advice Sheffield. Um, I work on the help to claim line, which is where people will phone up saying, for whatever reason, um, I need financial support, so I will help them get onto the benefit system. Right. And this is quite a tough job. You hear some yeah. tough stories. Yeah. Um, and it's nine to five. Yeah. Five days a week. Yeah. And I watch you do that. I've watched you learn a lot about the benefit system and how mm. punitive it can be. Yes. Um, so you've got to a point in your life where you know what you're doing, mm. have some idea where you want to go? Yeah, I, I do. I'd love to qualify as a solicitor um, and I'd love to work in family law. Um, but it's just, what I, I, I just working out when I want to go back to studying because yeah. I do enjoy having a yeah. job and... You know, having that independence yeah. and yeah, yeah. And, and being able to come home from work and think I'm done for the day yeah. with studying even when you finish you're, you're still done. thinking about it and yeah yeah and it's always looming over yeah. you yeah but but you've found where you need to be right now yeah so usually in this podcast we talk about literature and things like that mm. and it's often poetry but you have chosen mm. prose yeah and a book that you kept going on at me about yeah called Still Life by Sarah Winman mm. um, and and just tell me why so so it's a book about a group of people mm. it starts at the end of the Second World War yeah. in Florence yeah during the, really during the Second World War sorry yeah, yeah. and then it, it it moves between Florence and East London yeah uh, with different characters and you love it and you went oh, you read it twice yeah. and then I read it and I thought wow this is it's such a good book yeah it's such a new type of story told mm. in an old setting somehow mm. and it's got references to a room with a view which is a book I used to love when yeah. I was younger by Ian Forster so what is it about the book that you like um, and, how, and what does it speak to you about it's funny and with a lot of books I I decide to read my sort of Twitter and Instagram, the way I've sort of curated it. I was a big user of Twitter. I follow book, yeah, book 
I'd follow bookstores and book loving people and it just kept coming up on my feed I thought I must read it um, and I, I don't know I'd never been to Florence and you know you'd been and I knew it was wonderful but I, I finished reading that reading the book which is set in Florence from a lot of it over like seven decades I just felt yeah, like it I spans knew, a whole, yeah, whole I just felt lifetime. like I knew it and I think also the fact that you had I mean Evelyn um, Ulysses was the, one of the main characters who is this um, he's a, he owns a bar a pub in East London goes off to war, comes back um, goes up back to his old life with a woman he's married pure Peg, he, Peg. He she's loves an her amazing character and he's in love with her but she, and she loves him but in a different way and it was a marriage of convenience so she would have money during the war but he knows it can't quite be what he wants it to be and through circumstances that you find out in the book, he is left, through, through being a good Samaritan during the war in Florence, he had left a house in Florence yes. by an old man. Yeah. And he thinks, this is my chance to, to have a better life. So he moves to Florence. Mm. Some of his friends from the pub go with him because yeah. they think the same. And a and, parrot. And a parrot. I yeah. remember thinking, a parrot? And it, I mean, it's set, like you say, it's seven <clears> decades. And I was yeah. like, this is so unrealistic. This must be... <laughs> This must be magical realism. <laughs> and I look parrots up, the type of parrot is, they live to be over 80. Yeah. <laughs> um, the parrot is a powerful symbol in is. the book. Yeah. He speaks the truth. He does, yeah. And it keeps them together. Yeah. He keeps that friend group together. Yeah. Um, and and he, he, you know, he uh, he saves people yeah. during the... Yeah. There's a, there's a part... And I, again, I was learning things. In 1966, in Florence, there was a massive flood. Yeah. Um, and she referenced it in the book and the parrot is able to go to people and help yeah. them and, um, but yeah so this group of, of people go to Florence uh, to set up a new life they find this house and they turn it into a and b of Penasoni so they create their own community yeah. in this square in Florence Santa Spirita yeah, which is south of the Arno now this is what I love about you yeah. So you read that book, yeah. it really touched you. Yeah. How many times have you been to Florence now? Twice in a year. <laughs> and she's learning Italian. Yeah. It, it, there's something about the connections in your life between the stories that you <clears> hear <throat> and the life that you live yeah. and how they feed one another, which I think is a huge cure for anxiety. Yeah. I think finding something that you are absorbed by and connects with the deep part of your soul, yeah. your story. And what fascinated me reading the book was that those characters yeah. that are described were your grandmother's youth. Mm, yeah. She grew up in London during the war, yeah. through the Blitz, and after her, she was she used to sing. Mm. Um, she so many of those characters are like people that she described to us. Yeah. Uh, 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 it, it just felt such a deep connection. Yeah. And then they all go off to Florence. Yeah. And also another part of it that spoke to me was there's a lot of queer characters in the book. Exactly. And they are always accepted and they are always... And it and it's not this big... It's not said in a big way. It's just quietly, you, you know, you, you discover that, you know, there's a, there's a lovely um, part in the book where... Maybe you, he'll read a bit to us in yeah. a minute. Uh, Ulysses, who is the main character, and why I love him, he's such a great man, is Peg, this 
his wife he's in love with, well, when he's away at war, Peg falls in love with an American soldier and becomes pregnant and gives birth to a little girl. Kid. Um, yeah, called Alice. If she knows, and it's all that she knows, she's not the maternal type, and and what's so heartbreaking is the reason she can't love this little girl is because she looks like the man that left her yeah. and the man that broke her heart. Yeah. So when she hears that Ulysses is going to Florence, she said, take Alice, yeah. give her the life I can't give her. And he does. And he, he becomes really does. a father figure to her and he looks after her. And they have this wonderful bond. But when Alice is uh, 14, and she's always known she's different, she falls in love with, a, with a, another girl and she knows she's got to tell him. Um, should I read that bit? Yeah. Yeah. It's only a short bit, let me. Um, this is the very well thumbed copy that yeah. Laura's got. Um, here we go. So it's just a, a, um, a normal night in Florence, and Alice is 14, 15, and she's been out with this girl that she's falling in love with, and she comes back to the Penasoni, and Ulysses is, is up. Um, so it says. At 2am, this is Alice, she entered the palazzo and closed the door softly on the world. She slipped off her shoes, careful not to wake Cressy, whose bedroom door was ajar. On the way to the kitchen, a light in the living room drew her in. You didn't have to wait up for me, she said. I did, said Ulysses, looking up from a book, and I always will. Even when I'm 20? Yep. 50? Always. She laughed. You're hopeless. You look so happy, he said. I might go to bed. Okay. When she got to the door, she said, What did you say? I said, You can never disappoint me, Alice. I'm proud of every inch of you, every minuscule part of your being, of your thoughts, your joy, and your rage, and the way you sing and navigate your way into this often godforsaken, <clears throat> godforsaken. I love a girl. Pause. Lucky girl, I say world. They looked at one another and the distance hard. Ulysses said, a new year Alice, I hope it's worthy of you. Night Yuli, night kid. It's beautiful isn't it? Mm. What, and that, it's that acceptance of her sexuality Yeah. and and you've explored all, all mm. of that. Yeah. You would identify as? Um, queer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's beautiful that passage. Yeah. And there's another passage um, of Ulysses again, just being accepting, uh, of um, a man that um, is a notary who yes. brings them to Florence yes. and, and gives them the keys to the Penisoni and really in the first two years looks after them yeah, and introduces them to Italian yeah. life. What's he called? Massimo. Massimo, that's And right. they're just walking through Florence mm. and he says to, to Ulysses, I've fallen in love with a man. And Ulysses again just says, that's wonderful, Massimo. I can't wait to meet him. And it's just these, and there's other queer characters in there who all link together. And it's just this, and the, the author's queer. And I think the queer people, who, especially who write stories, you know, I think they write the, the world they want. Yeah. Um, even, you know, even in times where they know, they know that probably wasn't the way for most people. But it was um, always the way for some people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what she picks out. Yeah, and that's And my mother used to talk about... Yeah. ...that... that there were some people in in the world in her life sailors things like that mm. 
I never got a feeling of prejudice from my mother no. about those sorts of things. She was quite accepting. But that's how you get. That's how we get to where we are today because we never had those wonderful people who just that's accepted right. it and also allies and you know help. And and I'm so chuffed you chose that story. We're coming right to the end now. Mm. But that's how I feel about you. Mm. You know, I feel I'll always watch over you mm. um, until you until whatever age you yeah. are. But but you have always had the sense of independence to, mm. to pursue your own dreams, mm. no matter how naive they might have seemed at the time. Yeah. But I think that's how creativity and literature <coughs> works, that it, it awakens things that we actually possess. Mm. So I think you've always possessed an ability to, to fight injustice, mm. to stand up for people in the world, and those, you know, things like Silk, yeah. things like Buffy, yeah. things like this book, mm. which I would recommend anyone to read, Still Life by Sarah Winman. Because mm. it is, it's a story of acceptance yeah. and tolerance and kindness. And I remember those things from my mother yeah. and her mother. Um, when presented, you know, they might opine about all kinds of things that sounded vaguely prejudiced at times. Yeah. But when presented with someone yeah. right in front of them, they always seem to rise to the occasion. Mm. Um, so one last comment about still life. Um, about Florence, because yeah. you've been now. Yes. So what did it do for you? What did you think about Florence? I loved it. Um, and I want to keep going back and sort of, I want it to become like a second home. Um, but it just, well for me, like what you've said, I just walked around imagining those people. Mm. Um, and when I, I went to the square, and I thought, oh, of course, that's why she said it here. Mm. Because it is a communal square. It's where young students, you see students go and have drinks after classes. You see the old people meeting up in the morning mm. with their dogs, having their coffee. Mm. It's such a communal part of Florence. Um, yeah. And, and I think you're such a great example of the interplay between anxiety and physical trauma mm. and creativity. Anxiety, vulnerability and creativity. Mm. They're the three watchwords of this podcast and that's why I wanted to talk to you. So, uh, the last line of the poem that I wrote, until I finally found in your reshaped face the unmet woman of my grown-up daughter, the sweet smile so like my mother's and your astounding ability to reinvent your future. I think sometimes when you have episodes of mental health problems, they allow you to reinvent yourself. And that's what I hope you keep doing is never, never, never uh, think I can't reinvent myself. Yeah. I can't find another <clears throat> life, another way. Um, and that's what I hope you do in Sheffield for a bit but maybe in Florence as well yeah. which would be lovely so thanks Laura thanks, I hope other people enjoy hearing you as much as I just have and um, yeah so I'm the anxious poet and this is the anxious poet's daughter Laura a woman in her own right so um, we'll see you next time uh, on the anxious poets podcast thank you I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did recording it with her She's a remarkable person, Laura. Um, just just to give you a heads up, I'm going to record a 
podcast every month. So next month will be about the whole idea of Sabbath and rest and time out of time. And then March, I'm hoping to get um, a really interesting person. I'm not going to say yet in case she can't do it, um, but it'll be, if she can, it'll be about Jung, who I think is the Einstein of the psyche. And then April will be the poetry of dreaming. And then May, hopefully, uh, another guest, Father Simon O'Connor, an old friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about faith and loss um, and all of those type of things. So I really look forward to speaking to you uh, every month in 2024. And thanks for listening and being faithful to the Anxious Poets podcast. And please tell uh, your friends and people you think would enjoy this. Always looking for new listeners. And uh, any feedback you've got, um, you can you can send to me, adriangrscott at me.com. And uh, look forward to hearing from you and speaking to you next month. Go well. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.